Hello and welcome to these audio recordings from Project Echo, Westwick PHN Hub, COVID-19 Pandemic Response Echo Network Series. Series 6, Session 8. It's Thursday the 9th of September 2021. Welcome back to the Echo Network. This session's titled COVID-19 Vaccinations and Teens Part 2, Preparing for the Vaccine Rollout to 12 to 15-Year-Olds. While we've been racing towards 70% in regional Victoria, we've been stepping carefully across that metaphorical river we discussed a few weeks back, taking a step, observing and assessing the change around us and considering where to place our next step. With restrictions easing in regional Victoria, as healthcare workers, we'll be taking our next tentative steps tonight. Credit is due to our regional public health units and contact tracing for bringing our local outbreak under control. Our compliant communities have made this work possible. And of course, our primary care workforce has been spinning plates to continue the vaccine rollout at pace, safely assess systematic, uh, symptomatic patients, and to continue blended remote and face-to-face -face models of care with new infection control guidance and settings. It's been a juggle and a balance. So what could this next step look like for primary care? We'll be having one eye on the on Sin City and the other on the Ring of Steel, and we'll be continuing these conversations over the next few weeks. Over the coming weeks, we'll be amplifying our discussions about outbreak planning priorities for primary care, and we'll be de de um, delivering the first of perhaps a series of town halls to address um, perhaps in a little bit more depth some of the issues emerging from the, these sessions, um, these workshop sessions. Um, so we'll have a bit more information about that later today. I'm, I'm delighted that we're joined by medical director from the Grampians Public Health Unit this morning, um, Rosemary Aldridge, and perhaps to foreground some of these discussions that will be coming up as we reorientate ourselves and our workplace to the new settings and prepare ourselves for the next steps in preparedness and planning. So our key session, um, questions for the first half of the session will be, what are our infection control and prevention priorities in regional primary care at this time? How can we make sense of our role in the vaccine rollout and make the best use of increased mRNA allocations that will be coming through the Commonwealth from a, a public health perspective? Okay, so that's the first half of this morning. Schools in regional Victoria will reopen and will be prioritising Year 12s who will return to school and will be seeking vaccination prior to exams on the 4th of October. Last week, we discussed transmission rates in kids and impact of infection, and we opened up our conversations about communication skills in this age group and with their families. You can listen to the podcast recordings to catch up on these conversations if you miss them, and we'll pick up where we left off today. So the questions that we, I guess, um, you know, continue to answer and perhaps were left unanswered last week was how will we organise some of this in primary care? How will we support young people facing barriers to vaccines, such as geographic or health literacy based barriers? How will consent work in 16 to 18 year olds presenting independently? And how will we be thinking about rights and consent when it comes to that 12 and 15, 12 to 15 year age groups? So I'd like to just jump around and um, probably introduce uh, a panel for this morning. So we might go there um, next. Um, so just a quick introduction. Look, you all know Kate, but Kate, say hello. Morning, everyone. I'm um, Kate Graham, GP and clinical editor or lead clinical editor for the VicTAS Health Pathways and the COVID clinical advisor for Westwick PHN. Thank you. Uh, Rosemary Aldridge, hello. Good morning, everybody. Um, great to be back with ECHO again, um, which I think is just a superb forum. And obviously, the numbers of people who join uh, are testament to how well this serves the needs of primary care. Um, Medical Director, Grandpins Public Health Unit, and um, 
of course, like everybody, keeping a close eye on the events and what that means for all of us. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks Rosemary. Um, next, we'll head over to Jess Kaufman. Hello. Hi, my name is Jess Kaufman. I'm a research fellow at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute in the Vaccine Uptake Group. And I think I'm here to talk a little bit more about that communication aspect and dealing with hesitancy and concerns for parents and young people. Great, thanks. And thanks for joining us again, Jess. Um, now, um, Jane today is gonna to be here to answer questions and, and um, certainly pipe in at times, but um, thanks Jane Standish. Morning all, I'm Jane Standish, paediatrician um, coming from Warrandry Land this morning. Um, and here just to help out with some of the questions on the paediatric side. Have you got an update on, on VIC-CIS, um, paediatric VIC-CIS? Is that kind of now formal? Yeah, hopefully it'll be formal next week. It's still informal as yeah. of, of the current moment, but for, we're waiting for the formal bits and pieces to come through, hopefully early next week. Great. Okay, great. And been, um, great to hear a bit more about that. I'd put you under the pump today, but for all of those, um, if you've been to ECHO before and you've um, definitely met Callum Mags, who's been leading the um, the VIXIS clinic, um, Jane will be our um, representative and, and, and clinical lead for the paediatric version of it is my understanding. Yep. Okay, great. For the, for the whole of the West Vic region. Yep. Great. Lovely. Thanks. Um, and we're joined by um, my prof from Department of General Practice. So I think I saw Lena Senshi. Hello. Um, so Lena's a colleague and um, and when I'm not doing ECHO, I work with Lena and we lead the um, training program for the doctors and secondary schools um, training. And so Lena's here with her um, academic and research expertise around adolescent health. So welcome, Lena. Thanks, Bianca. Great to be here. And I love these sessions too. I agree with Rosemary. They're fantastic to bring everyone together. Thanks. So Lena's uh, Prof and of uh, General Practice and Head of Department at the University of Melbourne. Thank you. All right. So now before we get underway, I'm going to throw something quickly. Oh, yes. Okay. Quickly, um, learning outcomes. I've popped COVID peak there. And I've popped the web link here because this is the Victorian Health Service Guidance and Response COVID-19. And I just want to flag for you, Rosemary. Um, at the moment, we're at COVID peak. I've looked at it again this morning. The whole state's still black. I'm curious. Are things going to change? Regional Victoria is coming out tonight. Are we going to see any change in those settings? How are we going to use these settings and will they become regionalised so that we can adjust what we do in primary care around PPE, around our infection control? Will that all stay the same? So these are some of the things I think we just are all trying to tune into at the moment. So I just wanted to mention the link to that web page. Um, and of course, because all the conversations that we're having around our learning outcomes, around how we conduct primary care, um, you know, essentially, you know, really aligns to uh, our risk ratings. So what's going to happen around communication with that going forward is one of my key questions. What I've done is I've put in the yellow everything that's um, first dose pipped above um, 70. So um, that's, I think we're all looking really good. And I think that uh, across the whole region, I don't know about you, Rosemary, but the way this has been progressing, I'm wondering if the whole thing's, we're all going to be yellow um, by next week, which is amazing. And first do uh, second doses, I guess we're going to think about that. Hopefully we'll be coming about six weeks six weeks later regardless of vaccine so um, really great to keep an eye on the tally I've also kind of put this up because um, now we are reporting this data by LGA and again I'm curious will we start to really be thinking about LGAs going forward and becoming attuned to LGAs again Rosemary something I'm keen to hear your thoughts on um, as to whether there'll be more regionalized um, you know in information around risk but also around restrictions um, and I just want to put a um, I put a big star because I think um, we you know we all know Springs Medical and it looks like oh, they've been doing really well as a small town and so um, really good really big kudos to them. 
Um, and so great to see how that's progressing. Um, also, just before, when Rosemary um, does speak, I will put up that hierarchy of controls as well, just to kind of cue you into Rosemary about where our conversations have been coming from um, in the past few weeks. But now, before we head across to Kate Graham, I just want to quickly, uh, we, John Henderson's a GP that's been uh, regular to Echo. You probably, he's a doctor, but you may not have seen his face because often John's in the background working away. Um, but I just want to bring, um, give John a quick moment to um, let you know a bit about an issue that I think is really important to raise awareness about. Thanks, John. Thanks, thanks Bianca. Yeah, so um, morning, everyone. I just wanted to uh, mention this. So some of you may not be aware that the uh, Department of Health is not... Uh, um, they've confirmed that they're not counting telehealth consultations uh, when they're calculating the practice size, the size of practices uh, around Australia. And uh, it's having a big impact on the uh, income for practice incentive payments and the payments for employing uh, nurses. And uh, these are payments for quality practice activities in, in uh, general practice. Um, and uh, so while practices are more active by about, well, ours was about 10%, where our practice size is apparently um, nearly 30% smaller. Um, so a lot of people feel this is outrageous, um, that we shouldn't be worrying about these sort of things. We've got so many things to do at this stage. Uh, we shouldn't be watching our back on this. Um, so I wrote a petition about it and uh, a week and a half ago launched it. And so we're, we're nearly up to two and a half thousand signatures on that so if you'd like to uh, follow the link I think it's in the chat um, to read more and um, have your say sign it if you like and uh, share it if you like great thanks so much well done John that's great um, so Katrina if it's not in the chat let's pop it in the chat I think I've popped it in our in our agenda um, let's get that in the chat and um, do click on it and take some time to you know review that piece um, we, we really need to um, move forward into this next stage with the the strongest and most robust um, systems that support us um, to do the work that we're doing all right fantastic um, over to you now Kate Graham thanks Good morning. And thinking about those strong and robust systems, I think it, it requires strong and robust people, um, and that's resilient people. And I really wanted to flag that today is Are You OK Day? And although you can't see me, I am wearing yellow shoes to flag that. Um, and I think it's a really important um, question to be asking of people. Um, it's so relevant um, at the moment in the pandemic. It's really relevant for our teenage population who is they're particularly isolated at a time where social connections are really key and not so established um, or so settled. But for all of us, we're all under a lot of pressure. Um, I wanted to flag the doctors' health pathways. So there's pathways about caring for other doctors and medical professionals, um, but there's also pathways involved about caring for yourself. And I'll pop them in the chat a little bit later. So thinking again back to that um, the COVID guidance um, for Victorian Health Services, um, we're still peak, really important to keep an eye on that in terms of what will change because they're the sort of guidance, that's the guidance at the moment, the changes, face mask shields, um, types of infection protection. But I think with all of this guidance, it also has to be adapted at a local level. So if you're in an area that is a peakier version of peak, um, you're going to want to adapt that to make sure that you and your patients and staff are safe, um, whereas in other areas you may be more confident to just be at baseline. 
So I think there's a lot of work being done on ways that we can change our chance of a COVID positive exposure in our pathway and the impacts that that has on us. So that's something that we're working on a lot behind the scenes. So we'll update you when we have any further sort of differing guidance, but it's something to be thinking about. Um, and I know that last week we sort of mentioned the furloughing and the clinging tiers. Um, so unlike last year when COVID was sort of thought of as a short-term emergency, we really need to develop um, our sustainable models of care because we can't run at emergency settings forever. Um, so flagging that the new opening up next week is going to provide some more challenges for everyone as they receive more vaccination doses within practices. That also means the scheduling of more patients, more people entering the practice. The whole population sort of over 12 is now eligible, which is a really exciting moment. Um, but it does mean that we need to think about where are the bottlenecks in this flow? Are the bottlenecks related to staff or facility size? How can we leverage from our connections with other practices, with other services, with the local public health units to make sure that we can actually um, get the best outcomes for our patients in terms of vaccination and safety? Um, so I think we're going to be doing a lot more work on these collaborations as time goes on and how to get vaccinations out to where they're most needed when we have to prioritise within the entire population. Flagging again, it's hay fever season, as many will have already realised by the sneezing and um, sort of stuff that's going on in the background. It's also asthma, sort of allergic asthma season and thunderstorm asthma risk is coming along. So it's really important um, to get on top of these conditions early. We've got great pathways on all of them, um, but particularly at the moment in a COVID setting, because if you're walking in somewhere sneezing with eyes running, um, unless you've have a, had a COVID test, you cannot be certain that it's not COVID at this point in time. So really testing everyone's symptomatic, isolating until that negative result and sort of working with patients then to make sure that their symptoms are managed. Uh, because even though asthma and sort of hay fever are going to cause similar symptoms, they also increase your risk of COVID and transmission because you've got an increased risk of face touching as you wipe your nose, blow your nose, wipe your eyes, scratch at your eyes, all that kind of delight. Um, but you've also got that increased risk of droplet spread if you are infectious because you're sneezing, coughing, all that kind of stuff. So really thinking about those groups of patients in your practice over the next few weeks. So that's about all from me. Um, I think we're going to see a lot more um, over the next few weeks as Moderna comes out. We've got, um, as shown up here, the state government booking blitz, uh, phone numbers have been provided to schools for that, um, but also practices will be uh, fielding queries on that. If you want to know more about Moderna, there's the new um, Moderna information, or patients want to know more about Moderna, there's Moderna information sheets from the federal government now and the pregnancy and breastfeeding planning pregnancy decision-making guide has been updated to include Moderna information and all our pathways now include Moderna if you wanted to have a quick look through. So that's about all from me um, and I'll pop the links to the doctor's health pathways in the chat. Great. Thanks, Kate. And I'm just picking up a comment from um, if we can't use all of our Pfizer doses at our practice, will we easily be able to redistribute to hubs and other practices? Um, thanks for thinking about that. Um, I think probably um, Matt Dixon, do you mind just popping, I think it's COVID inquiry at westvicphn.com.au. So if team could pop that in the 
chat. I think we um, be really good to socialize this idea. And especially when you're talking to other colleagues that if you have, um, if you're able to water doses that you aren't able to distribute yourselves, I think it's really important that we think about this from a public health perspective and think about how we can actually manage those doses. Let's not um, let that opportunity um, go unresponded to. Um, but with that, actually, I'm going to actually throw across to you, Rosemary, um, to, you know, talk to us about, well, I guess we've got to start with that outbreak, the public health outbreak and vaccination update, but thinking about this particular mm, nice to have problem as it's going to come up for us in the coming weeks about supply and how we can best think about that from a public health and community protection infection prevention perspective. Thanks, Rosemary. Um, thanks very much, Bianca. I'd really like to echo your sentiments there. Um, in the first instance, uh, I think what our footprint of the primary health network has done has worked really, really well between state and primary care. I think there's been um, an acknowledgement um, on, you know, on everyone's part that we've got the one community we're serving. So if we work together to serve that one community, then we're going to have a very successful outcome for our one community. And part of that successful outcome is at the moment to date, to my knowledge, there are no positive cases in the footprint of the primary health network. Um, that could change at any time, of course. And the situation with uh, COVID in Victoria at the moment is that uh, what we're seeing, and you've probably already noted this yourselves, is in the daily numbers, we're seeing a jump and then a small plateau, then a jump and then a small plateau. And that's probably pretty much mirroring the time frame about one generation of spread of Delta. So it's, it's no coincidence that every couple of days we're seeing a jump and then a small plateau and then a jump and a small plateau. At least that's how I see it. And so I think we can expect we're due for a jump and uh, then we'll accordingly um, see that. Now, um, can I just remind people though that uh, we had 225 cases, I think yesterday, when Sydney or when New South Wales reported 239 cases, which was on the 29th of July, so six weeks ago or so, um, they were 17% vaccinated. We are 39% vaccinated in Victoria, 38% uh, vaccinated in Victoria. And as you've shown already, uh, Bianca, um, almost everywhere in the Grampians and the Bowen regions are actually higher than that for double dosing. So that is, and we're already seeing how protective that is, we think, in as much as, as you've been hearing, most of the cases we're seeing on a daily basis are in people under the age of 50. Most of the cases ongoingly are in people under the age of 50. However, of course, the caveat is there, that's detected cases. And it's very likely that there is undetected spread for a whole lot of reasons. People may be disinclined to present because of what it means for themselves and their family and their potential capacity to earn income. It may be because of the pressures of separating from family if they feel that that's going to be compelled if they're positive. There's many reasons why people may be reluctant to um, present for detection. And especially if um, a person has mild disease, they may think it, it will just pass and no one will know. Uh, and of course, that's likely the case, but unfortunately, the people who will know will be people who become infected if they're in contact with that person. It's, um, it's very rare now that if somebody has COVID that they don't infect the people who are closest to them who are unvaccinated, but we do know that vaccination is protective. I'm dealing with a family at the moment where there's one adult who's a healthcare worker and that adults, and, and they and they didn't introduce COVID into their family. It was uh, one of the other members of their household, but so far four children, partner and two parents are all COVID positive. And through the whole duration of those iterations of infection, the person has remained negative. So uh, it, hasn't stopped, it hasn't stopped that person needing to quarantine like everyone else. 
but certainly we know that um, we're seeing already the effects of vaccination, even at the low double, or you know, the relatively low double vaccination level we've got. However, it is the case that um, eventually everybody will either be vaccinated or get coded. Uh, and I don't think that uh, we're thinking that this is going to stop. And I don't thinking we don't think it's going to um, not reach people if they're vulnerable. And so what that means is that in the regions where we have an almost totally COVID naive population, in some ways we're at more risk than in other parts of, say, northern Western Melbourne, where we saw the second, the first, the second wave last year. And the people who are infected then will have some residual immunity. And so you may actually see some stopping of spread without vaccination because of the um, wild virus that was circulating and people had at the time. So essentially, we've got a COVID naive population in our regions, and that's why we need to double down on protective mechanisms. And clearly, primary care is absolutely at the front line of that. And so obviously, that's part of the conversation. The strategy from a state perspective is what we're calling aggressive suppression, which means that we're still contacting and still uh, having conversations with every case. We're doing that in a timely way, but uh, it may well be that um, uh, we need to pivot into making that more efficient. So it may be that the first message they get will be a, a, um, a stop and stay message when they're positive that we would normally give to say primary close contacts or secondary close contacts until we've identified their primary close contact is not positive. And that, will, that may well come from a source that's not clinical, but it will just say, you're positive, stay where you are, Tell, tell your family to stay where they are, you'll be contacted in the next X amount of time so that their first phone call doesn't come from a clinically trained contact tracer who goes through a long interview, which in the past has taken up to an hour and a half or two hours. Essentially, even our interview is now going to be truncated to, to derive the essential information, which is how are you, um, who's in your household, what work do you do and what work do they do? And essentially, uh, it's more obvious than not now that we know where people have got their infection because there's such a concentration of spread in certain locations. So it's quite rare that it's a sporadic case in as much as if someone lives in, um, you know, northern Melbourne in a particular few LGAs, the assumption is that they've caught it from spread of that LGA. We're not really taking time to go further to find out where they've got it. That, you know, we're not, we're not chasing zebras when we've got the um, likely transmission right in front of us. Uh, there will still be sporadic cases, though, that we do need to actually figure out, well, how is it that this person has got it? So, for example, if we had a case in the region, that would be the case. We'd want to find out what their connections are back. But I, I, I'm not sure what happened in Bowen, but I do know that in the 60 or so cases we had in the Grampians region last year, every single one of them could be traced back to an outbreak in Melbourne. And, uh, and then, of course, we had local spread from them on occasions. So... Uh, are things going to change? Yes, I think things are going to get hotter. And I think that actually means that we in the, in the regions um, need to be especially careful given we have a totally COVID naive, almost totally COVID naive population. And there is still travel between um, the major hotspots of uh, Melbourne and the regions permitted, obviously, for the essential reasons. We hope in healthcare that most of those people who might be coming from, the, from Melbourne to work for work are vaccinated. Um, however, um, the next thing that will change is that we're looking at the uh, benefit that vaccination confers in combination with levels of PPE, not, um, which are less than T3, but levels of PPE, so that we can uh, make a determination about um, if there's an exposure 
the extent to which a person needs to be quarantined or others need to be furloughed, for example. So that so the department's working on that advice. Um, at the moment, it hasn't changed. Nothing has changed our advice for health services. But clearly, we're looking at a pandemic, as people have said, we're looking at a spread of the unvaccinated. And uh, it is the case that aggressive suppression will hopefully, you know, going back to old terminology, but flatten that curve. But by flattening the curve, that means we're with this for some time. So, of course, the key, the key, uh, the key messages are around vaccinate, 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 um, protect, 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 but to be ready for um, and not surprised by necessarily if cases do come into the regions. Thanks, Rosemary. And so um, just to go back on that piece around the prevention of furloughing, so advice is coming around um, whether uh, vaccinated workers in primary care, as an example, um, changes the furloughing decision. Yeah, yeah. so um, that's, being, that's being worked on now from the department, a matrix of essentially risk assessment around the circumstances of the person who might be exposed in a, in a work setting, in a, okay, especially okay. in a healthcare setting, yeah. Great. And, and I'm not for, sure how soon that'll be ready, but yes, I, it is being worked on. And for practices um, wanting to seek advice around, um, you know, what do they need to do as a private, as a business around, um, you know, staff members who may not be vaccinated, that's a question that might go to somewhere like WorkSafe or WorkCover? Yes, yes WorkCover has a section on it and it talks about the obligation of any employer to notify when there's a um, member of staff who becomes positive to COVID. And, uh, and it says that an employer is aware, I've got it right in front of me now, when they've been told or when the staff member has told them. So that does actually trigger a whole lot of, a whole lot of actions um, under the um, Occupational Health and Safety Act. I've sent the link to you, Bianca. Thank you. So, uh, in fact, I'll put, the link, uh, I'll put the link in the chat. Great. Yeah, great. So part of um, what we're planning is for a town hall in a couple of weeks, I think we're going to try and get someone from WorkSafe to come because I think the tricky thing for primary care, you know, as Kate Graham and, you know, we've been discussing is um, that a lot of the guidelines coming from state GAVAR directives that um, refer really to employees working in health services, whereas as private, you know, business holders in primary care, um, we're working with that guidelines and, and, and guidance, but um, we do operate under duty of care. So it's really important, I think, that we're really clear about what our duty of care is. Um, thanks. And I think under a public Health Act, um, that's probably something that we're going to really need to um, uh, arm ourselves with a lot of new understanding that we may not have had to think about in the past um, when it comes to this space. So we're going to really deepen those conversations in the coming weeks. Thanks so much for that information, Rosemary. I'd encourage everyone to start familiarising yourself if not already. Um, then I guess the last piece I wanted to flag with you is comment around that. What should we do, be doing if, if, if primary care is unable to use, um, is, has access to doses and is unable to administer them for either, whether it's based on demand or based on workforce, what could we think, how can we think about this collectively for our one community? Thanks very much. So uh, I, I'd like to think that our vaccination team that's associated with the public health unit has worked very, very strongly alongside uh, primary care teams and alongside the primary health network in, as I said, vaccinating our one community. And so that, that also extends to a reciprocal arrangement around supply. Um, right from the start, we've talked, and indeed there's been many models across, uh, I know the Grampians region, where uh, there's been very much a co-model to do with um, space, workforce and vaccine and communication. So. Uh, I think there's no reason to stop that. And just because it's a different vaccine and it's becoming more plentiful in primary care than it is in the state supply, 
I would like to think that we can continue with those arrangements and that we needn't make too much of a fuss about it, actually, because that has actually been happening since the start of our vaccination program. So essentially, our, our vaccination team will continue to work with the primary health network and our primary care and the primary care teams to identify where there might be surplus vaccine over a week or two weeks or three weeks, which are surplus to the needs of that primary care team. And, and uh, certainly um, we can support the primary care team to then to think about where that should also then be um, used in their local or perhaps not so local environment. Yeah, great. Thanks, Rosemary. And so talking to her, so Linda's away this week, but this is something Linda Govan, um, so COVID inquiry at westbeak.com. Uh, phn.com.au um, has been thinking about how to coordinate this and um, support practices to do it. So really to sign out doses, the other clinic signs them in, it's it's really there are pathways and mechanisms to do it. I think it's really just about promoting this as something that's um, absolutely, um, uh, you know, accepted and, 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 and good public health practice. And may I add, Bianca, that um, without going into editorialising, there has been some challenge in from across all states um, with respect to supply um, to the state hubs and state vaccination centres and uh, with one notable exception. And, um, and so this is really the only way we're going to be able to ensure that we get timely Pfizer or Moderna to the people who need it most. Absolutely. So um, because the state, the state hub just doesn't get the supply of those two pharmacy, of those two, sorry, the state centre just at the moment is not getting the supply of those. That may change, of course. We hope it's changing. We're hearing every day that there's another plane load arriving from UK or Singapore. But um, uh, to my knowledge, and I'm not central to this, um, but to my knowledge, there's still some, um, we, we haven't got the green light yet that we're going to get as much as we need and more than we need from a state perspective. Um, with respect to vaccinating um um, a group of young people in our community who are um, young, mobile, completely COVID naive, live in residential accommodation and on weekends go back to their communities in rural and remote Victoria, i.e. boarding school students. I'm having a conversation uh, later today with the Executive Director of vaccine, Vaccination for the State about that because from a public health perspective, um, especially in terms of the risk of introducing COVID to our distant communities and also, of course, in residential accommodation, you know, the public health risk would, would, would put this particular group of young people, um, in my, you know, in my view, at a very high level of priority with respect to vaccination. And I know that is happening in some parts through some mechanisms, but I, I know that I want to make sure that that's happening not only in our region, but across Victoria as well. So, which is why I've um, taken it, um, which is why I've organised that conversation for later today. Um, so leave that. You know, I'm hoping that that will also allow us to have some local view about where public health risk, risk is and working in concert with primary care teams and the primary health network to be able to mobilise and liberate and do all the things we need to do to use the vaccine. And like we've said from the start, join up vaccine and who needs it and put them to, you know, and put them together. Great. Thanks, Rosemary. Um, now, with that, actually, I know there's probably a heap more to talk about here. I'm going to need to park it because I really want to move now on to our conversations about communicating with um, young people and families. Um, so thank you so much, Rosemary, and please um, do use the chat um, to respond to any of those um, elements. Um, we really value your support and advice and look forward to ongoing conversations um, about this. Um, over to you, Jess Kaufman. Thank you. 
Hi, thanks. This is so interesting, by the way, um, as someone who is not in the primary care space normally. So thank you for the opportunity to sort of be a fly on the wall for some of your earlier um, discussions. So uh, I spoke a little bit um, sort of quickly last week around about um, communication and communicating about vaccines, which is, of course, um, as I said, then, you know, your bread and butter. So I, I don't need to teach you how to suck eggs, but just to sort of flag a few issues that maybe are um, unique or might be coming um, in terms of talking to adolescents and to parents about COVID vaccines, particularly in that sort of 12 to 15 year age group. Um, I, as I noted before, um, so the intention to vaccinate children um, uh, uh, among parents has been lo uh, lower than, than their intention to vaccinate themselves basically throughout the whole um, pandemic. And for some reason, uh, or for a number of reasons, I guess it's actually kind of decreasing as it gets closer to a reality for some parents. You know, the, the risks feel more real, I guess, for them, the, the potential risks of vaccines. And so they are not necessarily um, in surveys anyway, saying that they're jumping up and down for it across the board. However, um, based on sort of supply and, and uh, how it's being rolled out, I don't think that the first conversations that you're going to have are going to necessarily be with the highly hesitant families. What we are seeing is that um, sort of anecdotally intention to vaccinate among youth themselves, among young people themselves, is very high. So there's a really high demanding population um, of young people who are really keen to get the vaccines and have been told for months and months and months to wait, and now they're being allowed to get them. So what you might actually encounter more commonly than a purely hesitant family or a purely hesitant parent is a mix of a, you know, a young person who's really, really eager and a parent who still has questions. And so that's something that um, you might have to uh, consider in your conversations. So you can go to the next slide, I think. Um, and uh, the issues are really similar to what we're talking about with other vaccines, but um, you might find that the conversations here are maybe more similar to when you're talking about sort of unfunded vaccines or, or optional vaccines rather than vaccines that are sort of in the traditional um, NIP schedule that are, you know, um, that, that are funded. I mean, I know that people don't have to pay for this vaccine, but I think it's um, going to be more of a sort of informed choice, risks and benefits uh, discussion rather than um, sort of a pretty uh, firm recommendation that they um, everybody just go and get it. Um, and I think one of the things that we have to consider in as we move forward is families who have children of different ages, which is going to be really common. So there will be families who have a child who's eligible and then one or more children who are not yet eligible, who are younger. And so one of the things that I think is going to be important to balance here is, um, you know, a, a realistic explanation of disease risk that is both sort of motivating for parents to want to vaccinate their older child, but not um, excessively terrifying because they can't vaccinate the younger child yet. So you sort of have to keep those two pieces in mind. And so there's been heaps and heaps of um, studies and, and data coming out all the time around, you know, how, how risky is Delta for kids? What are the transmission risks? What are the um, disease risks and, and whatnot? And I think it's going to be really helpful to have that kind of information at your fingertips so that you can reassure parents that their eight-year-old, for instance, is not necessarily at extreme risk, but they should consider vaccinating their 13-year-old because there is a vaccine available. Um, as I said, the, the conversations are less about probably um, convincing a hesitant person and more 
potentially about managing expectations in terms of supply. So when you, you know, making sure that people uh, understand that there may be waiting times or that, they, you know, that, that you may not have adequate supply yet for, for all the vaccine appointments for young people that um, people might want to be booking. Um, and also that urgency, making sure they don't think that the disease is so terrifying that they have to rush out and get the vaccine, um, you know, at all costs immediately. And then in that conversation, and this is something I'm sure that you've um, uh, addressed with lots of other issues, but just making sure that we're sort of addressing the concerns and the questions and the desires of both the young person and the adult, even if the adult is the one providing consent, you know, sort of getting that assent from the young person as well. And based on, Margie Danton did a, a talk, a big Q&A talk with, I don't know, 400 young people last Friday. Um, and uh, I asked her what the questions were that she was getting from all the young people. And she said that it was really primarily about pain. Is it going to hurt? Um, what side effects am I going to experience? Um, we know that, uh, you know, fainting is maybe more common in young people. And there was a lot of concern about fear of needles and that kind of thing. So it's a little bit different from what we see in the concerns, I guess, um, shared by adults around the COVID vaccines. Um, and the aim, of course, is to bring both people, both the parent and the young person to a point of um, acceptance for the vaccine. So there's a few, uh, on the next slide, there's a few different vignettes that Bianca um, sort of put together to think through, I guess, how you might approach some of these curlier questions or some of the situations that you might encounter um, with vaccinating young people. And uh, all the slides have the same bubbles around the side, I guess. And these are some of the things to consider and to weigh up in terms of how you're presenting this conversation, how you're approaching this conversation. And it's things like, again, talking about the disease risk, sharing data that's up to date on, on disease risk and risks um, of, of side effects of vaccines, making sure that you're addressing and considering the personal values and the worldview, I guess, of both the parent and the young person, offering alternatives other than getting vaccinated immediately or alternatives for younger children so that parents feel that they have a, an active role that they can still play in protecting their, young, um, their younger children. Um, being realistic and talking through what the actual requirements or, or you know, potential benefits of being vaccinated might be. So in terms of uh, making sure people don't think that it's gonna be mandatory for them to attend school, that kind of thing. Of course, talking through the side effects um, and, and how um, effective the vaccines are at protecting both kids and the people around them, and then going through the um, sort of consent assessment. Um. So that concludes the panel presentation for this session. We'll bring you any other snippets that we can, but come along and join the discussion next week. Over to you, Matt Dixon. Thanks, Bianca. So in the interest of time, I think I'm just going to mention the thing that seems to be top of mind for everybody is excess doses. If you've got Pfizer that you can't handle, it's going to be more of an issue and it's a welcome issue because the Commonwealth is sending, I think about 70 practices are going from 420 doses a fortnight to 900 doses a fortnight. We'll be sending out information on behalf of the Commonwealth of that shortly, hopefully today, possibly tomorrow. Uh, I think what we're doing is encouraging you to um, think about ordering to the maximum of your allocation because the PHUs are absolutely hungry for this and you've seen in the chat that I've shown the two options for Grampians and Barwon for them to come and take your excess doses. There's no reason you can't do that. There's no, um, no pro prohibition for that. So it's all within the rules. You won't get in trouble. Um, so let's think about that. Uh, we'll send out some, some comms so that you know exactly where to call and email to get those excess doses that you've ordered collected so that we can keep uh, as much Pfizer as we can in Western Victoria. Uh, I think I'll leave it for that for now because um, we're out of time. Thank you.
Great. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Um, look, good luck out there. Let's share information about who's got Pfizer and who's opening appointments to 12 to 15-year-olds. Um, Matt, do you want that information going to COVID inquiry or is there, a, you know, at West Vic PHN? Yeah. So let's just share information about that. I'm sure our paediatric teams at the moment um, will be really keen to find out where they can send, because there'll be a lot of um, patients, of course, now coming to paediatricians asking where they can get vaccinated and we will be the source of truth around that in the primary care sector. So if we can share that information with um, COVID inquiry and then perhaps what we could do is send out some information to both um, all of our paediatric units across West Vic. Um, that'll get the word around. Um, thank you again. Thank you so much again, um, Jess Kaufman. Thanks so much um, to Lena Sanchi, Jane Standish, um, and of course, Rosemary Aldridge. Um, and thanks to everyone for contributing today. Uh, please do uh, scan the QR code. You know what to do. Um, evaluate the session. Pop any questions for um, future sessions in the chat. Let's talk a bit more about redistribution and how we're going with kids' vaccines next week. And uh, we're going to have a session, a clinical session on um, cardiac uh, in the second half. So uh, we'll see you again next week. Take care, everyone. This series was brought to you by the West Vic PHN. I'm Bianca Forrester and I'm the GP facilitator for this series. I'd like to acknowledge the work of Gemma Misbach, Natalie Love, Fiona Quigley, Matt Dixon and Kate Graham for their work in coordination, support and contribution to this series. These audio catch-ups are produced by Gemma Misbach, myself and Jade Buller. Come along and join the discussions on Thursday mornings at 7.30am via Zoom. You can register on the West Vic PHN website by looking up Project Echo COVID-19. All sessions are RACGP and ACRAM accredited as a time-based activity and CPD certificates are available for non-GP participants. Thanks for listening and join us again next time.